I often think about, and I get asked the question, why did you do heroin? Like, duh. <laughs> and the, the answer is that each decision that I made or each line I drew in the sand was not that far from the next one. And so that that was a progression. And when I had someone by my side who wanted to do it as much as I did, it made it okay. Welcome to Criminalized. In this podcast, I examine what it means to be deemed criminal in America. I'm Sarika Ram. This episode is about Megan Perry and what it's like to be labeled an addict by the criminal justice system. Megan's childhood, in many ways, was the picture of the American dream. Her parents grew up working class, were the first in their families to go to college, and did very well for themselves. They lived in a quaint seaside town in Massachusetts called Situate. Growing up, Megan was a reserved and quiet but free-spirited girl. So I was mostly a very shy kid and very unsure of myself, um, you know, full of fear a lot. And but I didn't really know that because I didn't have anything to compare it to. Like I didn't understand why I was different or why I felt different. But um, I loved animals. I still do. Um, I loved quiet things and I loved nature things. Like I loved listening to the Beatles and doing a jigsaw puzzle or like um, Legos or drawing horses or playing with my model horses. I was fairly artistic. Totally obsessed with horses. Her life wasn't all strawberry fields and model horses, though. Her parents divorced when she was four, and some of her family members struggled with addiction and mental illness. So I know now that I had anxiety and depression in in middle school. I had terrible, terrible headaches. I mean, I had CAT scans and neurologists and all this and stomach aches, and I couldn't sleep. I had terrible insomnia and... um, Nobody just called it what it was, which was anxiety and depression. And so I was definitely self-medicating with the drugs and alcohol. It took me out of the anxiety and it, and it you know, changed my brain chemistry to temporarily enough that I didn't feel depressed while I was high. And so when were you first introduced to drugs and sort of you describe that moment that you first remember sort of being exposed to it? Well, I remember very clearly the very first time that I was introduced to marijuana, I was hanging out with a boy who had just moved to town. He was like a bad boy, which, you know, I was drawn to, of course, like so many of us. And um, I was maybe 12 or 13 and, and we were at my house and he had a joint and he was like, let's go smoke the joint. And I was like, you're cool. Okay. And I smoked the joint and I don't even remember what I felt like or anything like that, but I remember liking that it was edgy and risky and um I don't know it took me out of myself yeah and so were you immediately hooked do you remember I was immediately like all systems are ready for takeoff like I just was a yes woman you put it in front of me I want to do it everyone else is doing it it's going to make me feel different so you know and I still had quite a bit of caution too um so I would be careful not to get too messed up but I would always do it Mm. you know I would always try it and then and then I'd have a couple beers and I'd swear that I wasn't going to smoke 
pot that night because I used to get wicked, wicked sick, and um, and I would end up smoking pot. So it was, you know, that was like freshman year of high school. I knew, um, although I didn't want to admit it to myself, that I couldn't control my using, you know. And and it was I was a sophomore when my friends would not be hanging out after school, and so I would drink vodka home by myself alone after school, you know. It was so it was pretty. It, it progressed quickly, and it was pretty bad right from the beginning. This is a really common way people enter the cycle of addiction. Like Megan, they make an impulse decision, try a drug like marijuana at a party to impress their friends or escape their teenage anxieties and experience their first high. But as they continue to use, they have to smoke more weed more frequently, not so that they can feel the same euphoria they felt when they first tried the drug, but to escape the symptoms of their withdrawal. If the addiction cycle continues and isn't disrupted with the appropriate treatment and mental health support, it can become much worse very quickly. I went to college a year early. I did my junior and senior years of high school in one year, and that was not because I was super ambitious. That was because I desperately wanted out. And... I was willing to do anything to get it. And I don't know, I really knew what out was, um, what it was I was running away from. I know now today that I was running away from myself and my struggles with addiction and and mental illness. So by the time I was um, in my second semester in college, I was so profoundly depressed uh, that I told my parents, I cannot go back. I just cannot go back. And... They said, you have to. So they pushed me. I went back. And that third semester, my first semester, my sophomore year, I just wanted to die. I really did. It was so bad that I wasn't actively suicidal, but I was definitely passively suicidal. And I think that I just didn't have the guts to really own it, that I didn't want to live anymore. I just couldn't see a way to continue. It just felt so hopeless that there was just... Nothing ahead of me that felt like it could be okay. And so I went home for Christmas break and I told them, I can't do this. And um, and I was just such a mess by the time I went home at Christmas that they said that I could not drop out of college, but I could transfer. So I transferred. I transferred to Emerson College here in Boston and moved into Mission Hill, which is um, at that time, this was 92, I think, was a really rough neighborhood. And I was 18 and had no idea what I was doing. Um, I had spent a lot of time in the city as a teenager, but it's a whole different thing to live in Mission Hill um, at 18 years old. And uh, and that opened me up to a whole new world of drugs too. Mm. And so what drugs were you exposed to? I guess, how did your drug use evolve over time from junior high to that this point in your college career? So junior high, pot and beer, high school, um, pot, beer, hard liquor, acid, mushrooms, a little bit of cocaine. Um, First three semesters of college was just acid all the time, four or five times a week. Um, Drinking and smoking every single day and cocaine sometimes, so that wasn't really our thing. And then when I got to Mission Hill... Um, cocaine was much more prevalent and, and, uh, 
I went, I did a semester in the Netherlands in, uh, when I was, I turned 21 while I was there. And when I came home, I had, I tried heroin for the first time while I was in Europe. And when I came home, I brought home the person who would become my husband. And he was really, he really liked heroin. And we, so when we moved back into Mission Hill together, um, we sought out cocaine, but we got it from my, my roommate's boyfriend and he, and it was crack, but we didn't know it. And we complained to him. We were like, we can't snort this. It's all like weird and chunky. And he said, well, you should smoke it. And so we put it in our bong that we usually smoke pot out of. And it was amazing. And um, so that started this experience with crack that we were, you know, we started off, you know, I don't think anybody uses crack recreationally, but, you know, where we would just do it sometimes. And, but then it became every single night and we were spending every single penny that we had on it. And, and, you know, coming down off of crack was very, very difficult. It's a horrible, horrible crash that it's just, it's really, really hard to ride out that crash. So we decided we would get heroin to come down off of the crack. And when I tried heroin that time, I fell in love with it. And it did for me what I had been seeking all along, which was to wrap me in this warm, fuzzy cocoon that kept me immune to every single thing outside of me, as well as everything inside. It was just completely, complete numb numbness and that's what I had been seeking my whole life was not to feel not to think not to be and so I just wanted to be like that all the time at the time that Megan was battling addiction the war on drugs was operating in full force in the 1980s and 90s the emergence of crack cocaine in the streets of major metropolitan cities led to a moral panic in the United States. On the streets of New York, it's called crack, and the deals go down quickly. It's the most addicting thing that probably ever existed in the world, you know? It will make you a slave. Due to the media frenzy surrounding crack cocaine, Reagan funneled hundreds of millions of dollars to the Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA, in the late 80s. As a result, droves of DEA agents flooded cities across the United States, arresting people left and right on drug trafficking charges. This described to me the first time you were caught for your drug use. Yeah, so I had, you know, there were many times that I just had sort of these brush in, like these, you know, run-ins with the DEA where I didn't face consequences. Um... And they were just sort of minor interactions. But everything changed um, the first time that I was indicted on a felony. And so I had I had this dealer, he was, you know, he's like this kid. We called him a kid because he was younger than us. And, uh, you know, that's where what my husband and I got our heroin from. And we had actually gone on methadone and we're able to not, we, we were able to stop shooting heroin, stop using heroin for a period of time. And, and that was uh, the first time in forever that 
we were able to do that. And this kid, I don't even remember his name, honestly. So the guy that was our dealer started calling me a lot, saying, can you please get me a couple of bags? Can you please get me a couple of bags? And I kept telling him no, because we weren't doing it. We weren't like, you know, why, why would I do that? And he kept calling and saying, I'm really, really sick. Please, I'm in withdrawal. Can you please get me a couple of bags? So finally I said yes. And so we went and we got his money. He had some sketchy guy with him and they wanted to come with us. And I said, no, you can't come with us. I get him out of here, whatever. And um, he gave us 40 bucks and we left and we went and got him two bags of dope. And we brought, came back and we gave him the two bags and, um, and we went on our way. And it was about six months after that. I don't even know when that actually happened. But it was a long time after that that I had a knock on the door when I was home alone one day, and it was the DEA. And they said, you better let us in because you don't want to have this conversation in the hallway. And I knew that I did not have to let them in. I mean, I knew, you know, that they, they had to have a warrant, and I wish that I had stood up. I wish I could say, like, I stood up for my rights, and I did not let them in the door. But they are so intimidating and scary and mean and bullyish and, and aggressive. Um, and I was completely caught off guard. And um, one of them, he just basically kind of pushed me out of the way and went into my apartment. So they told me that day that I, that they had me on a wire for selling heroin and I had no idea what they were talking about and then they told me that that day that we'd gotten the, the $40 worth of heroin for our dealer that he was wearing a wire and they knew that we weren't dealers they knew that we were just users and not even big users at that and that the other kid was the dealer that kid had gotten busted and he was setting us up to get out of his charges Confidential informants are a key tool used by the DEA and are meant to help identify kingpins, major distributors of illicit drugs. The way the arrangement typically works is the DEA arrests someone, usually on a drug trafficking charge, and offers a deal. Find us other dealers and we'll reduce your sentence. A lot of people take this deal and turn in their dealers and friends. In the late 90s, nearly a third of people sentenced in the federal system on drug trafficking charges had their sentences reduced because they informed on others. Now, many people have come forward saying that they felt coerced to quote-unquote snitch on other people and even lied to have their sentences reduced. Megan also could have been a confidential informant if she wanted to. So they told me that either myself or my husband would go to prison for two years if uh, when we're convicted on this, and they definitely get a conviction because they had us on the wire. But if we set up this guy that we happen to know from the methadone clinic and help them get him, then we then we can walk away. And that's when I realized what was happening. You know that it wasn't about them thinking I'm a heroin dealer and you know mischaracterizing me or. Anything like that, it was simply a means to an end. I was just a pawn. I was just a way to get to the next one. And they, they busted that kid that was our dealer to get to us, to get to the next guy. And that they, they didn't care one bit about us or 
what happened to us or what the truth was or anything. They just wanted the next guy up the chain. We're not even like in a chain, you know, I mean, it was. So, so they left. I told them I would cooperate because I just want to get them out of the house because my husband was an undocumented immigrant. And so if he had been, we knew that I had to, um, you know, we had to just, like, either I'm going down for it or he's going down for it. And we both agreed, my husband and I both agreed that we would not set up the other guy. Um, partly because of the, the, you know, the high moral ground, like partly because it just was, it's not right. I did what, I, there's no question that I'm guilty of what the DEA is accusing me of. It's true, you know, yeah, I sold the $40 worth of heroin. And I just don't think it's, I don't want to play the game. Part of it is that I no, I'm not going to play your game. I'm not going to be part of your dirty, crappy game. Um, and part of it was because I truly believed as a middle-class, white, educated woman that there was no way I was going to go to prison for $40 worth of heroin with no prior criminal record and them knowing that I was not a dealer. I really believed that. I was wrong. Um, they don't care about any of that. And um, I wouldn't cooperate. And that made them incredibly ang angry. And that's what they cared about was making me do what they wanted me to do. Um, and But we ended up refusing and, and we ended up realizing, my husband and I, that I had to be the one that faced the indictment. Because if he was indicted on a crime, his undocumented status would be revealed. He would be deported for overstaying his visa and for criminal um, uh, indictment. And then he would be banned from the U.S. And that was unacceptable to us. And uh, so I went for the indictment thinking that I would get out of it somehow. And I got, uh, I was given $1,000 of bail and my mom paid it. And I was released, you know, like the next day or something like that. To make matters even more complicated, just weeks before the DEA knocked on Megan's door, she had found out she was pregnant. So I was very newly pregnant and um, absolutely terrified before the DEA even knocked on my door. The pregnancy itself was terrifying. And um, I thought that I would never be fit to be a mother. I was barely fit to be a human. Um, you know, my substance use disorder was really, really bad. My mental health was really, really bad. And um, the circumstances in which I was living was really were really bad, and I just didn't know that I could do it. So I found myself, you know, dealing with all of this DEA stuff as a, a pregnant person, uh, and knowing that if I was sent to prison or had to serve a sentence, that I would have my daughter while I was incarcerated. That was Megan's greatest fear that she'd be sentenced to time in prison and have to have her baby while incarcerated. But as long as she didn't violate the terms of her bail, she could stay on the outside and attend to her unborn child until her trial date. She didn't make it until then. I violated bail, and I don't remember exactly what it was for, but to be fair, 
my husband was growing marijuana in the eaves of the building that we lived in. And he refused to get rid of them during this process. And so uh, there was a time when the DEA came and the plants, they found the plants. So that was probably what the violation was. And honestly, it's all just one big traumatic mess. So, uh, so then that day came and they arrested me and that was in April. And uh, so I was five months pregnant and this time I was being held with no bail. So I got booked into the jail that day. Um, I remember it very clearly. Um, you know, the strip search and the the, the, the the dirty tote with like, they hand you a tote with just like a handful of things in it. And those are the only things you're gonna have for like who knows how long, right? And the orange jumpsuits and the like used underwear. And it was just horrible. I had uh, two different um, colored shoes, slip-ons, of course, and uh, it was just all very degrading and inhumane, like just treated not as a human. And uh, and yeah, so I was put on the women's pod and left there to, you know, not knowing what was going to happen, but knowing that I wasn't leaving anytime soon. Um, and that was, you know, that was probably the worst, the lowest of that whole time was sitting in jail, anticipating that I would give birth to my daughter while incarcerated. And in those two months you were there, what was your day-to-day life like? Ugh. Uh, day-to-day life at the jail was very depressing, um, at that time, I was in the Cumberland County Jail, and for the women's block, uh, there were two tiers, two floors. So one day, the bottom floor would be out of their cells for maybe like most of the day, you know, from breakfast to dinner, except for when they do head count. And the other one would be locked in the whole entire day except for one hour. So one day we'd be we'd be locked in 23 hours a day just in our cells and then the next day we'd be out for like eight hours or you know nine hours or something and then the next day we would be out just one hour so it was very isolating it was very depressing it was very frustrating um I wasn't well liked you know in in jail you know in, in situations like that it's like everyone feels so down on themselves like their own self you know value is so low that anything that they can do to make someone else be a little bit lower you know that dynamic tends to happen in that kind of a situation in those settings and so I was pregnant and I was a terrible person for it you know um and also I was on methadone and, and, you know, and so there's just another reason for people to be like, oh, my God, I can't believe you're having a baby on methadone. I can't believe you're in jail, pregnant. Um, you know, so it was hard. In the United States, the justice system views addiction as a crime to be punished rather than a disease to be treated. Look no further than the raw number of individuals who are incarcerated and have a substance use disorder. Anywhere from 45 to 65% of the American prison population has an active substance use disorder. It's no surprise numbers are this high, considering that drug possession and trafficking, 
even for small amounts, can result in prison time. Many people also commit crimes other than drug offenses, like theft and assault, under the influence of drugs and alcohol. As Megan's story will show us, there are serious pitfalls for utilizing the criminal justice system as the primary mechanism for dealing with addiction. And so in your time, you know, in, your, in the correctional facility, did they attend to your addiction at all, any of those symptoms? So I was fortunate because I was already on methadone, but I was pregnant. So had I been on methadone and gone to jail, I would have just had to detox gold turkey. But I was very lucky, if you want to call it that, to be pregnant so they can't, it's unsafe for the baby to take um, somebody off of uh, uh, an opioid replacement. So I, they would lock down the entire block and, um, and so the nurse could come in and bring me my methadone while all of the women watched, many of whom were, had substance use disorder, were withdrawing themselves. I mean, it was not, it wasn't good. About 4% of newly incarcerated women are pregnant. These expectant mothers often have difficult pregnancies, complicated by substance use, physical and emotional abuse, and histories of stress and trauma caused by the conditions of their poverty. On the inside, these women experience poor access to appropriate prenatal care and must learn to manage their pregnancy in an environment that is uncomfortable at its best and violent at its worst. Notoriously, many women are shackled to the hospital bed when they're giving birth and have only moments with their newborn child before having to turn the baby over to a family member or, in many cases, the foster care system. This was going to be Megan's fate, but an organization called Maine Pretrial Services gave her a second chance. The organization worked with the courts to provide a pathway for Megan to be released from jail and have her baby on the outside. I got to have my daughter in a hospital, and I got to stay there with her. And, um, you know, I feel incredibly, incredibly grateful that I was given that opportunity. I don't think I could put words to what a, a, an incredible gift it was that Maine Pretrial allowed me that. Um, and my daughter was in the hospital for two months because she was born dependent on methadone and she had to be weaned down off of it. And um, I was able to be with her for that entire process. And that was a huge gift, huge, huge gift. And I'll, um, that's one of the, the gifts and the blessings, one of the points of light in a lot of darkness. But I still had the felony to face. Megan faced sentencing in drug court. The specific rules and regulations surrounding drug court vary from state to state. But generally, drug court functions as a way to divert people with substance use disorder from prison or jail to community-based treatment programs. It's basically designed to be a more compassionate court process that prioritizes treatment over punishment. Drug court programs are becoming increasingly popular, but there are important racialized differences that need to be acknowledged. According to many studies, black and brown people are less likely to be processed through drug court than their white counterparts. As a white middle-class woman, Megan was well-positioned to receive leniency from the courts. 
The deal for Megan's drug court treatment program was that she could avoid being incarcerated as long as she stayed clean and stuck to the treatment protocol. It's much easier said than done. My very first day of drug court, I tested positive for methadone. I had gotten down to five milligrams a day, but I had no supports. And I was the only one doing it to myself. Like I just, it was completely self-driven and self-managed. And it's incredibly difficult to do, especially with no supports of any kind. And my husband was still not only doing methadone, but injecting it and um, abusing other drugs and everything while I have this baby and, um, and I'm trying to be clean and all this stuff. And, and God bless him. You know, I just want to speak to that, that he is also someone who suffers with mental illness and substance use disorder. And, and he was doing the best that he could as well. Uh, it just wasn't very conducive to what I had to do. So I tested positive for methadone the very first day I reported for drug court. I had my five month old daughter, was she five months then? Maybe like six months old then. And, um, yeah, she was with me, and I was standing on the sidewalk in handcuffs with her in her car seat next to me, waiting for my undocumented husband to find a way to get to the offices and pick up our daughter. So I didn't start off well. I got arrested, I think, four times in the first six weeks of drug court. I was really struggling. Um, But I did eventually do it. I did eventually complete it. It took me a year and a half. It was... The first year and a half of my daughter's life was the hardest year and a half still. For people with substance use disorder, the requirements of drug court aren't reasonable expectations. Often people have to report to court on a weekly basis, attend X number of support group meetings per week, and pass randomly administered drug tests. Every time someone misses a meeting or fails a drug test, they're punished with a strict curfew, more regular drug tests, or even jail time. These sanctions disrupt people's lives, causing them to have to miss the shift at work or make last-minute arrangements for childcare, on top of the challenge of managing their substance use disorder. In other words, drug court-mandated treatment programs are a step in the right direction in that they acknowledge that addiction is a disease that requires treatment. But ultimately, it's a punitive approach that often falls short. I think one of the things that we get wrong Um, especially here in Massachusetts, is that we punish people when they use a substance. They have a disease called substance use disorder. What it means is that they use substances, often against their will. And so, you know, for somebody with a substance use disorder, um, we need a lot of support and and, and encouragement and, and all of these things to be successful. And the vast majority of us screw it up a whole lot before we get it right. And so what the justice uh, system does is just punish us over and over and over and over for positive urine screens. I mean, you get tested constantly, uh, and you cannot have any positive tests whatsoever. Um, You have to go to like five 12-step fellowship meetings a week. You have to uh, go to group however many days a week. You have to go to one-on-one counseling. You have to obviously not break any laws of any kind. Um, you know, you have to have a job. You have to pay your bills. You have to, um, you know, it's a lot of requirements of people that even people who are just regular people probably don't meet all of those requirements all the time. And then we, we 
you know, put people in who don't have that skill set. They don't have those abilities. That's why they're there. And we expect them to do all of those things. It's, it's not a great recipe for success, if you ask me. And that, that's, you know, why I struggled. I couldn't function. That's why I needed help. Megan was mostly abstinent for the first four years of her daughter's life. But when her daughter was four, she relapsed, as most people with substance use disorder do on the path to recovery. And her world came tumbling down. When she was four, my husband picked up cocaine again and, um, and offered it to me, and I, and I made a terrible decision, and I did it. And six months later, we lost everything uh, because I have a substance use disorder. I can't just do cocaine one time. I will just continue to do it and do it, do it at any cost, and that's what happened. And so when my daughter was four and a half, I lost custody of her. I lost my job. I lost my home. And my husband was deported and banned from the U.S. And uh, I was homeless and lost, totally, utterly lost. So I, I spent a couple of really dark years um, bouncing around, homeless, um, chasing the next high. And I started selling started selling cocaine to support my use of cocaine and um, and I was very successful at it. And you know everybody's good at something. I was very good at drug dealing. Um, I am now good at many other things. just saying. Um, <laughs> I've developed other skills, but at that time, um, you know, I was very successful at it, which meant that I got, you know, really big, really fast as a, as a dealer in a very small city. And so I attracted the attention of the DEA again and they pursued me. And I, I had a, you know, my husband had been deported and a couple of years went by and I was in a new relationship. And so we were like a team of drug dealers. Great. We were business partners. Yeah. So, um, so the DEA finally caught up to us, and I was indicted on a Class B felony trafficking charge. It was the exact same charge as the first one for heroin, only this one was for cocaine. And the day that we were arraigned in court, they could not find my criminal record, and I was given, I was released on personal recognizance, which never should have happened. But... They lost my record. I don't know. And I, and I, and I walked out of there, which is crazy. And, um, I eventually, and like a week later, I managed to get the bail money and, uh, and I, um, bailed up my boyfriend and we resumed business because we have, a, you know, very active substance use disorder, no tools, no supports. And we went back to what we knew. And we wanted to use, and the only way that we could support using was to sell, and so that's what we did. And we got set up a second time. So the first time that we got that, that first felony for cocaine was a setup. Somebody else got busted. They wore a wire on us. You know, voila, same old story. We get busted. So now we have committed a Class B felony trafficking charge while on bail for a Class B felony trafficking charge. And um, 
because addiction is a freight train with no brakes. We just had no, I mean, it's complete insanity that we would do that. Um, we couldn't stop ourselves. And um, I went into jail. I did about two months, and then the entire time I was um, asking to to go to a treatment program because I knew that I, you know, I had a prison sentence waiting for me, clearly. And I accepted that, yes, I'm dealing drugs, and yes, that is illegal, and yes, I'm facing the repercussions of that. I didn't question that aspect of it. But what I knew was that I would probably eventually die of this disease if I went to prison. And so I wanted desperately to go to treatment instead of prison because I didn't want to die. I wanted, I wanted to try. And they let me. About a month into that, um, month and a half, I broke the rules and I got sent back to jail. Got kicked out of the treatment program. So, you know, the repercussions of that is I violated that. I violated my bail, so I went back to jail. And this time it really was like I'm not getting out. You know, I'd blown every chance I'd had, you know. And I, um, but I still really, really wanted to go to this one particular treatment program. And so I went, you know, before the judge alone and I begged. And I mean, I begged. And said, I just don't want to die. I don't want to die of this disease. And I just want to get well. And I want to get off of this merry-go-round. And I just want another chance. Please give me another chance. And he did. You know, I got a deal uh, from the judge at that point that if I, if I were to plead guilty to the felony, to one of the two felonies that day, he would let me go to the program, and then I would have another year of probation after I graduated from the program. And I pled guilty to the felony. And I obviously I have that felony to this day. Megan had a little bit more kicking and screaming to do before she finally gave herself over to recovery on December 28th of 2011. She hasn't taken a mood or mind-altering substance since. Megan's story can be a little hard to follow. She's faced three Class B felony trafficking indictments, endured a high-risk pregnancy and chronic homelessness, and made several failed and successful attempts at recovery. But what's more important than the details of Megan's every felony indictment is that she was able to exit the cycle of incarceration and addiction, unlike so many who overdose and die on the streets or in prison. How? Megan received several second chances even after violating the conditions of bail and drug treatment multiple times. The system decided to acknowledge that poor decisions and relapse are a part of recovery. Megan's black and brown counterparts aren't as lucky. People of color convicted on drug charges receive harsher sentences for the same offenses their white equivalents commit. Black people are nearly four times as likely as white people to be arrested for drug offenses and 2.5 times as likely to be arrested for drug possession, even though evidence demonstrates that black people and white people use drugs at the same rates. Lisa Newman-Polk is a lawyer and social worker who has worked as a mental health clinician in the Sousa Baranowski Correctional Center, a maximum security state prison in Massachusetts. I asked her if the criminal justice system is an effective way to address addiction. I mean, I, I, I think it is a good step to be diverting people to treatment on drug possession rather than putting people in jail. 
I just think that it shouldn't be a crime to begin with. So while I, I am certainly appreciative that that's um, a progressive step that's been made, it's, it's a step and we're not at the top of the staircase yet. We really need to get to the point where we are no longer criminalizing possession. By having um, a public health approach, we actually bring people in to help them get better rather than this punitive system where we just keep going round and round in circles and keep thinking, oh, if I just lock you up, if I just throw you in solitary confinement, if I just do this other really harsh thing to you, you'll get better. And one of the things that I, I always want to point out is that most of my clients in the criminal justice system, they were punished terribly as children. Punishment is just a normal part of life. You know what's really unusual is compassion and having people, especially in the professional realm, say, you matter, I care about you, I'm here to really help you and do that in an authentic and genuine way. That's what's unusual and that's what helps to repair a person's dopamine in their brain is having these positive relationships positive activities, and feeling a boost of self-esteem and self-worth. Sure. And so how does the prison system typically handle um, substance use disorder and addiction, and do they do a good job? So I was a clinician at the Maximum Security Prison, Susan Baranowski Correctional Center in Shirley, Massachusetts. So I was in the state prison system, obviously at the Max, and um, the way that the drug use is handled in the state prison system uh, is if somebody tests positive, so they'll do random drug screens on people, especially people that they suspect um, have been using. And if somebody tests positive, then that person generally is going to go to solitary confinement for some period of days and um, they get a disciplinary report. So it becomes a disciplinary infraction and that then impacts that person's classification. So what I mean by classification is are they going to be classified to the maximum security prison, a medium security prison, or minimum? So I worked with many men at Sousa Baranowski who were struggling with severe addictions, were not remotely dangerous in terms of um, being a threat that required them to be in maximum security custody, but the addiction was so severe that they just kept picking up disciplinary reports for positive drug screens, and they couldn't get out of the max all because they were addicted. And at Sousa, we didn't even have any of their so-called programming for addiction. So I'm a mental health clinician, 48 out of 50 of my clients at any given time has a substance use disorder written down as a diagnosis, but we're not actually doing anything for it as mental health clinicians. In Massachusetts, the state prison system contracts a private nonprofit, Spectrum Health Systems, to provide addiction recovery services on the inside through a program called the Correctional Recovery Academy, or CRA. CRA is a group-based treatment program that addresses addiction by tackling what they term criminal behavior, which includes dysfunctional interpersonal relations, poor impulse control, and inappropriate responses to authority. So that tells you how um, the Department of Correction views addiction, and this is consistent with the drug war and how America has viewed addiction. So I can't blame them for that. I mean, they view addiction and drug use as a form of criminal thinking. It's criminal behavior, it's criminal thinking. And I guess they're not wrong because according to our laws, it is criminal behavior and criminal thinking. So there is this um, very clear picture of how the system is saying 
you're being bad and we're going to put you in programming that talks to you about criminal thinking. And the fundamental problem is that we are, in my view, uh, distorting treatment. So we're making treatment really ineffective because it's impossible, again, in my view, for a clinician to do authentic work with a person uh, about their addiction and about relapse if that person is afraid they're going to jail. When you tell your story, what do you want people to take away? And I guess, why do you tell your story? I tell my story, I've told my story a lot to heal myself uh, because storytelling is very, very healing. Um, and I've told it to so that I get to own it. There's a couple things to take away from my story. One huge one is just hope. Um, I've survived so much and for me to be in recovery and have um, such an incredibly powerful and, and destructive substance use disorder in remission for so long uh, is amazing. And I don't know why I get to be here, but I do. And I think part of it is because I'm supposed to tell my story. The big takeaways from my story are that uh, I'm white, middle-class, well-educated, and my outcomes were very, very different from somebody who uh, you know, a person of color, a person who came from poverty, a person who was not educated, a person who was, um, you know, had all these, you know, other things that made it very challenging, their lives challenging before they even got into the system. And I think the other thing, too, is that for me to face a two-year prison sentence and for it to cost me what it did, I mean, it, it cost me such a great deal, all that I went through from the day the DEA knocked on my door the first time to when I graduated drug court um, and the residual trauma and loss and, and everything that came with it, was that really the right price to pay? You know, does that really make sense in that context? I mean, I don't think it does. And we're doing that to people by the hundreds every day. But you, usually they're, they have brown skin and they come from a tough neighborhood in the city and the circumstances are different, um, but it happens all the time to all kinds of people. And the system is broken, and it needs to be dealt with. You've been listening to Criminalized. If you're interested in supporting people with substance use disorder in Massachusetts, become a member at MORE, the Massachusetts Organization for Addiction Recovery. This organization advocates for legislation decriminalizing addiction in the state and provides resources to system-involved people battling addiction. The ACLU of Massachusetts is another advocacy organization in the state that prioritizes ending the drug war. Recently, the ACLU of Massachusetts passed a bill preventing people from being sent to jail only for relapsing. Join them in one of their lobby days to push for your representative to support legislation that increases access to treatment for court-involved people battling addiction. 